Welcome to The Corner, La Source's digital show dedicated to the sport and entertainment industry. Every two weeks, we invite a professional to share their experience, background, and challenges. The sport industry moves fast, and having their insights is the best way to keep up to speed. Welcome to The Corner. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a, a new episode of Le Corner Podcast. Uh, this is my pleasure today to welcome Michael, Michael from FIFA. Hi, Michael. How are you doing? Hey, JP. Pleasure to be here with you today. Yeah, same, same. Uh, for the audience, it has been quite difficult to to manage to to get it, but technology-wise, I think we, we settled for for this morning, so we're good to go, which is which is tremendous. Um. Michael, before we, we jump into your, your daily work and, and the key issues around the athletes, the data and the future of the, the sports tech, I would say around the uh, player concern, it's uh, who are you? Who, <laughs> where are you come from? Okay, uh, a brief overview, I guess. Well, for the last three years, as you said, I've worked as Global Policy and Strategic Projects Advisor at FIFPRO. For those who don't know, FIFPRO are the global representative body or players' union for professional footballers across the globe. Uh, myself, I'm originally from Dublin in Ireland and I currently live in Amsterdam while working at FIFPRO at the Global HQ. Uh, previously, and, uh, go ahead. Yeah, before before you joined, before you joined FIFPRO, even like uh, your career or, uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe the studies like... Were you were you down under, or have you travelled the uh, yeah studies and in in the twenties? What what were you up to? Yeah, so I had a bit of a varied twenties, I guess. I played professional football in Ireland for ten years first, and then once I retired in two thousand and eighteen, I started putting I guess the academic qualifications that I'd done alongside football to better use, uh, and. Yeah, I spent a year down in Sydney working in a couple of legal roles and building my experience on the legal side of things before then joining FIFPRO in late 2020. How, how come you moved from 10 years in Dublin to Sydney? <laughs> it wasn't 10 years in Dublin. I moved around Ireland a bit when I was playing football to a few different teams. So I'd lived in a few different places. But uh, I guess just getting experience in a different lifestyle once I retired. I think any professional sports person to transition from like playing professionally to normal working life or regular working life as most people. Uh, it's not the easiest thing to do and it can take time to adapt no matter how well prepared you are in terms of qualifications or preparations in advance. So I guess I just wanted to experience a different kind of lifestyle while I was doing that. And of course, Sydney's an amazing place to live for anyone who's been. The weather's amazing and it's a really cool lifestyle. I've been on holidays before, so yeah. when I got the opportunity to try it, uh, it was just something I really wanted to do. And then I was able to build my professional experience alongside it. So it's just a really good opportunity. And actually, how do you, I mean, you've been a professional footballer for like 10 years. Like, do you think about your second life? I mean, the after career and uh, how do you get prepared for that? Like, Yeah, I guess in one way I was lucky that I was playing in, 
Ireland, which I guess is one of the smaller professional leagues. So you're not making the level of income that you're going to retire on. So you always know that you're going to need your career after football. So I guess it was always in the back of my mind to prepare for that. Uh, I did my university degrees and master's degrees early on when I started playing. And then they just kind of had them in the background waiting until I finished. And so that made the transition a bit easier once I had those done and I was able to transition kind of straight in then to working life a bit. Uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. the transition's always why, difficult. Why legal? Is, is, is it a passion of yours, like law or something like that? Or is it was just like you've tested different like fields or maybe a comics or a governance or I don't know, but why why the legal side of things? Is it also linked to uh, your professional career and you signing the contract or being aware of all of that or was it something different? Uh, yeah, well, I did my first degree in economics and politics in my undergraduate and then I did a master's degree in business and a master's degree in law. So I had those kind of subjects, I guess, to choose from in terms of which one to go down, which road to go down. Uh, I chose the legal route because I think sports being probably a passion of mine for as long as I can remember. Uh, obviously, firstly playing, but then I was still very enthusiastic about staying involved in the industry in a professional capacity. So I did go down my, that route or that aspect of my career. And I thought the legal route was a way that I could actually do that and combine both. I enjoyed some of the legal topics I studied and I enjoyed some of the legal work and then kind of becoming a, a lawyer and then transitioning into the sports aspect of that was something that was quite attractive to me, ultimately. And you, and you always thought, like, when you started, it was, you wanted, you knew, I mean, you said you don't have all the revenue to secure your lifetime, but you were like, okay, I'm going to study to work in sports or I'm going to study to work wherever opportunities bring me or was it really like sports sports oriented from the start no when i first started i guess it was just a backup plan uh, there was like a safety net if football didn't work out or football didn't work out you can always get an injury or you can lack a form or you don't get a contract so i guess my parents would have always pushed me to do out school and then university afterwards to make sure you had your degrees and that always gives you options going forward. So I guess initially it was just a backup, your backup plan or your safety net for afterwards. And then it was more as I got probably later into my 20s and I actually tried to map out then what I actually want, what specific sectors and what specific aspects I wanted to work in. Knowing that some connection with sports was always interesting to me, but just which niche and which aspects of that were best, then it's when I started kind of thinking a bit more seriously in my mid and late 20s about how to map that out. Mm. and uh yeah you mentioned a bit the, the transition is like i've been running like executive master actually for uh, former international players to to retire and transition of the pitch like on from off the pitch um how was it like like what's the best memory you have or what what's maybe the worst or how does it feel uh, I guess it's the you, when you're a professional sports person, you experience a lot of the the highs are very high and the lows are very low. I think regular professional life, it's a bit more balanced. Uh, like if you score a goal or you have a win in front of a few thousand people and they're clapping and cheering you, it's obviously a massive adrenaline rush on the positive side of things. 
conversely, if you have a few thousand people shouting abuse at you or clapping when you make a mistake or things like that, it's obviously a, a complete opposite. Or if you lose and the, the whole week of training is then geared for kind of there's a disappointing mood around the training ground and the whole week is geared towards that. And then you can't necessarily always switch off either when you might go to the cafe, you might go for a coffee when you leave, say, the workplace or the training ground. There's fans in the town that obviously have an interest in the team and they're passionate about it. So you can kind of, it's very difficult to get away from. So that's good when it's good and very supportive. But then when it's not so good, it's very difficult to uh, get away from it. So, yeah, I think it's the extremes of the highs and the lows. So then when you come into regular regular professional life, you have to just kind of get used to a bit more balance. But I think it's really good. There's some of the intangible skills I think I learned playing football. And that's what people do when they play sport at a high level. Those intangible mm-hmm. skills, I think, can be, there's a few of them that are really transferable and it can really help you advance your professional career afterwards if you can kind of channel them in the right way. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, yeah, I hope at FIFA you don't have the same pressure on the Monday morning, like, if there are lows or stuff like that, it's not like being a professional footballer, like having three loss in three weeks. Um, yeah. yeah, I always okay. say, it's funny, I always say to a couple of friends, they ask, they talk about, uh, or I use the analogy, if your boss was standing over you, your entire work day right over your shoulder, like just staring at your screen in case you type something wrong, that's effectively, I guess, what? It's like playing in a stadium, that being your job on a Friday night or a Saturday, and everyone watching every single yeah. thing you do. So it's just a different level of scrutiny, I guess. Every mistake's just sitting on the back of you, watching your laptop or everything. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I, I don't think I'm, I'm good enough and I would be able to uh, support that. Um, okay, Michael. Fish bro. Um can you, I know you've been like, you've just mentioned your role and you've been presenting a bit to organizations, but can you a bit tell us more what what it is exactly and what the role entails exactly? Yeah, so as I said, FIFRO is the global representative body for professional football players. So we have 65 member unions across the globe, uh, domestic unions. So each of those 65 countries has their own national union, which will deal with the, the issues in their own countries. And then they kind of all feed into FIFPRO as the global body that oversees it all. Uh, within my specific role, I work on the global policy and strategic relations team, um, which basically are, who are basically responsible for managing political relationships and strategic partnerships with external stakeholders, mm. such as FIFA, UEFA, uh, major domestic leagues of the World Leagues Forum. And then we also, their team also manages strategic projects with member unions, our own member unions and internal stakeholders, which can involve research projects or negotiation processes. Uh, so the work is quite, the breadth of the work can be quite wide, which is, keeps it interesting, mm. keeps it relatively exciting. I guess for the first couple of years, yeah, just, I was, uh, go ahead. No, 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 but. Go ahead, go ahead for the first for the first years. For the first year and a half, maybe eighteen months I was here. So I'm here three years at this point. Um the first eighteen months or so I could spread quite generally in terms of my work across a lot of aspects of men's and women's football. Uh loads of different aspects of the professional game. 
Whereas the last 18 months or so, I've probably focused more on specific areas. Uh, things like men's player workload and the calendar, which is, I guess, very topical for the top players at the moment. And then, mm. as we've spoken a lot about technology innovation, which then encompasses a lot of our player data management work. So areas like that have probably become more of a focus over the last 18 months. Yeah, I think these are the key issues. I mean, the, the workload, the, um, the match calendar, but also the... Uh, and that's what we're talking actually today. I mean, all the tech and the innovations happening and how that impact the players and what the, the point of view. So for the listeners, like FIFA is kind of the equivalent of FIFA. And so you're managing the members just like there are federations. There are also unions protecting the players and you're working with them. Like just in the three years, like based on your experience, it's what, what kind of challenges you've encountered uh, along your journey, like maybe in the first 18 months when it was a bit everything or widespread in terms of topics, but even in the last 18 months when it was a bit more focused on topical issues that are driving the game. Yeah, there's always new challenges every week. Um, I guess for the listeners that don't know, FIFPRO basically is working to represent the voice of professional players and kind of ensure that players themselves are represented in decision-making, which can impact their environment and their industry, for example, in discussions with FIFA, like you said. And, uh, we don't always achieve it, but that's what we're trying to do. I guess when I tell people, if you tell people you work at FIFA, a lot of people mm -hmm. outside the industry, their common response you'd receive is, oh, what, those players are all multimillionaires. Why would they need a unit or why do they need a unit? Uh, well, in reality, it's that top... I don't know, a couple of thousands that are making that kind of very high salaries and that kind of life-changing money, whereas I think we represent over 60,000. Yeah, 99% are, are not these players. Yeah, we represent over 60,000 professional players and the vast majority of them worldwide uh, are earning a normal, stable wage, I guess, or maybe an unstable wage, but they're earning normal kind of salaries or even less than normal, what we would consider normal. So there's a lot of problems mm. which then arise uh, across different regions of the world, uh, depending on, I guess, the social environment in those countries, the legal environment, and the culture, different things like that. So sometimes that can also make adopting general policy quite difficult. For example, take the player workload issue. It's obviously of the player of the big leagues that everyone would be familiar with, where men's workload, men, player workload, and men's football is quite a big issue. They're playing too many games. The top players are playing internationals, club games. Just constantly not getting enough rest. But then you have other smaller developing leagues who actually probably want to play more games. So underload is an issue there because they want greater opportunities to improve their contracts or their careers. There's more exposure. So they actually want to play more, more football. So I think it's an example of that. Sometimes it's very hard to create a global policy as such because you have certain mm -hmm. regions and certain markets on the one hand, which have an overload problem and then sort of an underload problem. So that could be a challenge then sometimes devising the policies which can be flexible enough to address the concerns of players in the different types of markets. Yeah, and I, and I guess as well when it comes to the workload, it's also because you have different bodies having the different competitions. So looking at Europe, you have the, the Euro with for the national teams with UEFA or the Champions League, but at the same time you have the 
the national ones, uh, with the Premier League or the League One or the EFL to the Bundesliga. So I guess you also have for the unions, it's also you have to. I don't know if it's lobbying, but you have to discuss with plenty of different stakeholders with their own views for their own competitions, and that might be also a challenge to navigate uh, from your end too. Yeah, exactly. I think the football market is very unique and it's so fragmented in, in the sports world. I think you look at, for example, in comparison to some of the American sports where collective bargaining is more enshrined and you have one league, say like the NFL, and then you have one player union like the NFLPA. And they'll frequently mm. argue and they'll frequently negotiate to try and get the best deal for each, each other or for themselves. But at the end of the day, it's one party negotiating with one party. Uh, it doesn't have that fragmentation. Whereas you say in football, there's a host of different competition organizers from the domestic leagues to continental bodies and to world bodies in international football. So there's a lot of different competitions, which then means a lot of different negotiation partners. And that's a large part of the reason why the calendar has been such a difficult thing to solve or difficult issue to solve, because I guess every organization or every party is kind of looking after their own interests. Uh, and there hasn't been a solution reached that we would say for the welfare mm. of the players because of that. On, on that, Michael, I was thinking like CBAs or collective bargaining agreements have always been, I mean, from our European lens, we've always looked at it as a potential solution, saying like uh, this could be the way forward because North American leagues are doing it and they are doing it well. But do you think, I mean, I don't know if, I mean, from your own personal views, like to which extent we can replicate that kind of collective bargaining agreement? Is that something, I would not say feasible, but is it something we need to be inspired from? But do we need to tweak it? And if we need to tweak it, to which extent do we need to adapt it to our own situation in Europe? Because I think it's the way it works in the US is great. Business first. Uh, and as you said, like one party against one party, you know, like you can go on strike, you get the best deal out of it, but you know afterwards that it's done and you're going to work as a professional athlete in the league and uh, you're going to give like 200% until the next uh, collective bargaining agreement, new negotiation. But I don't know to which extent it is realistically plausible in Europe. Yeah, I think on a domestic level, it's quite well, it's relatively easy to implement if the will is there to do so from the governing bodies, from the powers that be. The, for example, take a country that we have already in, say, I don't know, we a specific example, but some countries actually do it quite well already. Australia, for example, we have an Australian union and they negotiate directly with the Australian League and they have a CBA between them and they kind of work it out like that, kind of similar a bit to the American model like you were talking about. So I think at that domestic level, it's definitely possible. It's something we're striving or our unions are striving to do. Some of them have varying levels or it's a complete CBA or collective bargaining agreement, as we phrase it, or if it's a bit less uh, comprehensive, maybe like a memorandum of understanding or kind of the between agreements that set out the broad terms or parameters that I've got to full. CBA negotiation discussions. Uh, so I think it's definitely possible at domestic level. And as you say, once you get into that continental or global level, uh, it becomes a bit more tricky as there's more parties and more fragmented, a more fragmented environment. 
but I still think it's possible. I think the players have never really been given a full say or a full voice in the collective decision-making. And I think that's something that if the will was there for organisations to integrate the players properly into that, it could be done. But of course, yeah, everyone has their own interests. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. And I was, yeah, national level makes sense, clearly. But I was just wondering, uh, I don't know, to have your, your own perspective because it's it's not as an easy answer as the, the, the situation or the, the, the reality is a bit more complex too. And as you mentioned, like very fragmented. So I was I was just curious out there. Um, can you... The one thing I would just add on that, JP, would be... I think the role of players, even if you see a lot of the sports business and a lot of the sports marketing studies and stuff or research that's done these days, they all highlight the kind of growing importance of players in terms of the commercial revenue, the commercial success of sports, especially in football. And I think it's probably becoming harder and harder then to discount the voice of the players and not give them the say they want because it's so tied to the success of the sport even more so than it ever was before. You see how Fans, for example, they constantly follow, or now they follow players much more than teams. You see some of the social media metrics of certain players that far higher, far outweigh the the followings or the followings of clubs, even the biggest clubs in the world. So I think the increased that kind of transition with younger generations is also impacting the the essential need for players to be involved in decision making going forward. Yeah, but clearly players are, and athletes in general, are taking more and more power. Um, the fandom has changed, that's for sure. Uh, way more focused on the players than the, the team. But the thing is also, I think the uh, the players are more and more educated. They also know more and more about the complexity of the industry they are in, but they also become more and more savvy around being investors themselves or owning teams or even investing in technology for the player performance or for the product of sports itself in its future. So ultimately, I think players are more and more savvy and they, are, they have more and more power um, today than they never had in the past. So I think it's important, clearly. Uh, but as you mentioned, it's also, I think that's your role also to make sure you can gather their voices to come together to have even more weight than them being in different uh, markets or different territories, different teams, and, and trying to push at their own level, but not having the full weight of gathering all of them together. Yeah, exactly. I think even no matter how much even the top players in the world, no matter how much money you're making, there's also certain things you can only get done through kind of the collective voice or collective decision-making in action. Individually on your own, it's very difficult to make kind of meaningful change across certain topics. So I think that collectiveness of that collective action is important. I'll give, an, I'll give you a strange example. When the war broke out in mm. uh, Russia and Ukraine a couple of years ago, or earlier on last year, the, we got uh, contacted by some of the Shakhtar players who were caught just as the war broke out and they couldn't, they wanted some of the Brazilian players that were playing Shakhtar as a group of them. Uh, they were kind of stranded in the country and wanted to leave, but they just couldn't. And these are players who are earning like quite high salaries 
and have plenty of money to ordinarily do whatever they need to do. But it's the example that we were able to help them get onto a train and get out of the country for an intense few hours and days. But it's just an example of sometimes you can have all the money in the world. You can be a really important player. But there's just certain things that you need to you need a collective voice or you need collective things to, to solve it. Mm. Actually, I was about to ask you, like, in concrete way, like, what, what are some of the uh, actions or even measures that you do to help layers, like, across the different unions or in that very specific type of situation as the war that you just mentioned is? Do you, do you have some, some other examples or items, topics that you push for? Yeah, I guess just touching on that, that one thing I mentioned at the start, it's something that kind of social aspect or the, I guess the social good aspect is something that I never really expected when I joined FIFA that we were doing that. I thought I was joining, well, I was focused on the football part of it. It's not something that I was necessarily aware of that FIFA was as evident or as um, working as cohesively in, but it's something that's actually very rewarding. For example, I personally wasn't involved to much extent, but when the Afghanistan, when the Taliban took out back, took back power in Afghanistan last year, the year before, the you remember that period of a few weeks where people were allowed to leave or evacuate the country if they could before they kind of formally mm-hmm. took power again. And a few years ago, we had worked with the Afghan Afghanistan Women's National Team on kind of a, an abuse case and a couple of abuse cases with, to do with their FA kind of abusing their power towards the women's players the women's team so we had contact with them already and they were contacted by the captain of the team uh, when all of the that the withdrawals started happening and we were able to help after a lot of negotiations I think we were able to help uh, the players we were able to secure a charter flight and we were able to help a lot of the players and their families uh, evacuate to Australia. And they started a lot of them started new lives in Australia then. So <laughs> that's just an example of something that I would never have signed up for or was, didn't think I'd be ever involved in. But then when you are to, you play a very small part in that, it's extremely rewarding when you're actually, say, helping people escape persecution or actually life tra- life changing things rather than we all think. I think. Of course, we're all very interested in the sports industry and player workload and these other issues, uh, which take up most of our time day to day. But those other kind of social issues can be extremely like, insightful and rewarding then when they do happen. But that's on a bit of a tangent there. That's not the main focus of our work, even though it is rewarding. I guess the main focus of our work is around the conditions for players and the game. Uh, we have a thing called the policy compass at FIFPRO, which probably explains it quite well kind of lists out all of the the different policy fields that we're active in. I think as FIFPRO has grown in capacity in recent years, I think we've doubled the workforce over the past five years or so. And I guess as the capacity internally has grown, it allows us to be a bit more forward-looking and mm. I guess take steps in advance yeah. rather than reacting. Yeah. I was thinking, Michael, like being forward thinking, it's a, uh, I mean, we've all seen it, right? Technology is impacting us, like ourselves and in the way we work for the past five, 10 years, or I'm not even talking about COVID and the remote stuff and that stuff like that, but 
we know how technology has changed stuff, how we are consuming, how we are watching, how we are playing the game even has completely changed. But even, I guess, the the most dramatic change come from the player. So I know you guys, I've put the player IQ tech, so I will let you a bit discuss or present it to, to the audience, but I wanted to hear you as well, especially on the measures around the the technologies uh, affecting the, the workplace for football players. I mean, it's always fun to say workplace when you are thinking about a football pitch, but that's the reality you are in. And the guys now, like, the way they are going to the training rounds, uh, measuring the sleep before nights, the, the way they eat, the way they perform every day. I mean, technology and not even talking just on the business side where what you've mentioned with the fandom and sometimes one player can be even more important than a team in terms of microeconomics or social media presence. But even just like on a day-to-day at the workplace, I guess, this is something you've been following very closely. Yeah, very much so. It's become a massive growth area of technology and innovation, particularly player data, has become a, a major growth area for us in the amount of work we're doing over the last 18 months, I'd say or so. Our work goes on a bit further back than that, but that's really where it's taken a, a big increase as well. I guess to go back to your previous thing, just to set it in context, I guess people have three kind of areas broad areas they work across for the players you know the kind of first basic kind of fundamental part which is career conditions which i guess it involves things like protecting pay contractual regulations working conditions for the players health and safety things like concussion medical things those kind of fundamental workplace issues for football players then you have more of the institutional part which is like the governance mechanisms whether that's legal frameworks or appeals bodies or casts or things like that, including protecting right to organize or collective bargaining agreements, those kind of aspects. And then you have a third part, as you said there, which is probably more creating a sustainable industry or improving it in certain ways, whether that's through innovation, whether that's through competition design or diversity, quality, inclusion. And within that part of it is probably where that technology and innovation work comes in for us. As you say, the advance of technology and the development of data collection particularly uh, has led to uh, far greater quantities of data, far more technology being used in general across football. Uh, So that brings with it inherent risks, but also, as you say, it brings the prospect of advantages for players as well. There's so many different things out there that can help players to get those extra couple of percent out of their game now. So it's become it's obviously been embraced then by the industry by a lot of players because of the potential benefits it can add. Uh, on our point of view, then there's a big education exercise and a protection exercise to making sure that mm. players are educated on the risks as well as the benefits, and that the framework is in place across the industry to make sure they aren't taken advantage of. But you can you can say from your unions that the uh, the interest is there. I mean. I guess there are different levels of maturities, uh, just like you have in terms of professional leagues and the level uh, at which you play and the, the financial capacities as well to afford for these kind of technologies to to help improve the uh, the performance of one player, but and of a team. But do you think? Can you do you reckon? I mean, can you tell us? Like all unions are really fast forward or thinking about it, right? 
In which way do you mean? As it just conjures I mean, up the, the topic in like, general? Well, yeah, when you mentioned the education, because I guess you always have differences and different level of maturities, but I guess the, all the unions recognize that's that change and that needs now in terms of like being crucial as part of their of their work yeah absolutely i think more and more are beginning to realize it their knowledge is consistently expanding uh, as you mentioned there with yourselves a bit as part of our player iq tech program as we call it just as a bit of background we established our fifth Pros knowledge center which is called player iq back in 2021 and it serves as kind of a knowledge center which hosts all of our data-driven research and intelligence for the industry and strategic support across various issues. And it probably has four main components at, at the moment. What would be a, work, a workload tool called the PWM tool, which tracks the workload of maybe 1,800 professional players and helps influence our strategy around that topic, men's and women's football. Then we host a lot of our research reports, which vary on a host of different industry issues, but they're hosted within the Player IQ Knowledge Center as well. Then you've got Foresight, which is a forward-looking opinion piece section with different external experts. I don't know if we've got you on yet. Might have had you on, I think, one of the first first articles, did we? A couple of you last year. If not, if not, we'll have to get you back soon. Um, <laughs> and then fourthly, Player IQ Tech is the aspect that we established last year as the fourth component of the Knowledge Center. But it's basically a structure to manage our technology and innovation work and player data work uh, with our unions and with the broader industry mm. in general. Uh, we saw the over that period beforehand, we'd kind of been working on different aspects of player data and establishing different technology and innovation projects, but we wanted to put it into a framework where it was quite consistent. So that's why we established Player IQ Tech. And I mean, see the kind of growing importance of those issues. We wanted to integrate it properly into our strategy, I guess, with the ultimate goal of equipping our member unions with greater knowledge of the area. So to enable them then to educate the players on their rights and the risks. Yeah. And then also for the unions to be able to negotiate uh, domestically with their, whether it's the leagues or the FAs or the federations from a place of, from a place of having a knowledge base to be able to do so. Michael, on that, the, the priority, I would say, because we, we know the importance of sports data today. So what, what are the, the priorities for you um, for, for sports, I mean, for football in general, but also for the unions? It's uh, to better educate so that <clears throat> players are better protected and they have a, a fair share of what's happening and the way their data is being used. Um, what What... What for you, yeah, top priorities, I would say? Uh, well, like most fundamental is that the unions and players are educated on and made aware of the related risks associated with the data collection because, as you say, there's so much, so much data collection happening now in football because of the different technologies that have been implemented and because of the advances in technology themselves. I know we have a, a slide which you've seen before in a few of our decks and a couple of our workshops regarding the World Cup, the last two World Cups, the Men's and Women's World Cup in Qatar and then in Australia and New Zealand during the summer, whereby 8 million data points were collected per player per match in each game during those two tournaments. 
I was built using an optical tracking system in the stadium, uh, which I think you would have seen whose the pur- main purpose was off- semi-automatic offside or to run the semi-automatic offside system uh, to assist with officiating. But mm-hmm. if you say eight, 8 million data points are being collected per player per match, that's obviously a very high amount. But we also understand that then in a couple of years' time, by the time the next World Cups come around in 26 and 27, the technology is going to be capable of tracking a far greater number of data points. So that's going to go up even again. Uh, so I think that just em- emphasizes the kind of continued importance of ensuring, yeah, there's a certain framework in place to protect players when this amount of data is being collected. But I guess, as I said earlier, I think it's important to remember the, the uses. We're obviously coming out from a protectionist point of view and an education point of view. So we probably discuss the risks maybe more so than the benefits because I think the, the benefits are usually conveyed a lot more easily or a lot more known. Whereas the risks mm-hmm. maybe aren't always as evident. We call it the camouflage effect at FIFA waivers, where technology is often introduced for a certain main use case or example, which ha- does have a benefit for the game and for players. But then it's important of any hidden uses of this collected data or any resulting risk to players that come from that. Uh, that's, I guess, what we'd be trying to do work with industry stakeholders, whether it's league, clubs, or companies, private companies in the industry, active in the industry, to kind of create a holistic industry environment where players are afforded sufficient data privacy protections, I guess, while also being able to avail of all the benefits that the technology can offer. And it's also like, you know, protecting also the next gen of players because I guess the young kids in the academies or anywhere being scouted is the same as like, Data is becoming more and more crucial. You've mentioned like um, competition, but you, you can see it everywhere. So yeah, I think I think it's quite it's quite important, but it's still, I guess, uh, complex due to the fragmentation. So that's why I was I was like leering into that to see what was your position because just like in the US, you know, you have the CBA. Here it's a bit different, again, between the national, the international level and the different competitions, uh, and also who is also collecting the data and for which purposes. So, but I guess the, the first work, as you mentioned, is first to educate and make sure you have a framework under which players can, uh, be protected and look at in case of, uh, interest, but also uh, specific questions on specific matters. Yeah, exactly. And I think one extra point is probably good to, to note or just touch on. I think it's the, the type of data being collected is also important. Or the, the increase in the more mm-hmm. sensitive types of data being now being collected, kind of enabled, I guess, by the improvements in technology. For example, biometric data or volumetric data just is being collected more rapidly in much larger quantities. Uh, and that obviously then brings related dangers as well. Because that kind of invades yeah. quite, well, quite private I, I types guess of you guys, I guess you guys must be following uh, what's happening also in the industry with the uh, Uber of this world or the Amazon of this world, where data and technology are also being used against some of the employees or on the data privacy side as well. So I guess you have also some interlinks there to for the case of the football players. Yes, correct. I think there's some. There's definitely some analogies across different industries. 
I know from the webinar series that we wrote for the members that you're involved with us in, I think we had one of the one of the lawyers is working for Amazon Workers. Yeah, as one of our one of our guests, uh, one, of the, one of the webinars, talking about just the different ways that different companies are yeah, monitoring or surveilling, I guess, their employees now to an extreme extent in some instances across different industries and just how invasive it can be. And I think certain industries and certain workers and unions in different industries are now kind of fighting back to make sure that workers are adequately protected. I know in Spain, for example, there's they brought in a, a Spanish, it's called the Spanish Riders Law, which is kind of directed at platform workers, such as say Uber or Deliveroo. Mm. The law is actually directed at the algorithm which runs it because the algorithm is essentially deciding who gets work and who doesn't. So it's deciding on your employment. Uh, even though no one actually knows what's, what the algorithm is or what's in it. So there's just a lot of inherent risks in that. If it's not open and transparent that the, the workers of the union have no say in that, it's obviously open to bias or the people that make it, then it's open to bias and other discrimination and other factors. So I think this whole area of you know, other industries and surveillance in general and AI and the emergence of that influencing your employment conditions, I think it's quite interesting and there's definitely parallelism across other industries that can be brought into the work that we do in the football context. Mm. Well, agree, agree. And I mean, you've mentioned AI and stuff like that. I'm just like, I'm just curious in the future. I mean, how do you, well, first, like what's, what's on your radar for 2024? Like what, what are the main things or key action items that you, you're thinking of for 2024? Uh, more broad FIFA level, I guess, in the football industry. I think three issues that will be prominent, their data and the technology will remain a big issue, if not an even bigger issue, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, that's going to be a growth area going forward for a while. I think the player workload issue is really coming to a head. I think it's really becoming unsustainable. Now you see the increase in new competitions with the new Champions League coming at the new FIFA Club World Cup. So I think those issues over the year ahead are probably going to come to, are going to remain prominent as more and more kind of top players speak out against the toll it's taking on them. You saw Rafael Varane, for example, was already retired from international mm -hmm. football relatively young. We actually had an interesting stat in, uh, from a PWM research last year, it was briefly mentioned. It was 243 days recalculated as the amount of days that Varane actually spent in French national team camp between the start of the training camp prior to the 2018 World Cup and the end of the 2022 World Cup where they were in the final. There's 243 days outside of, say, your regular working job with your club over the course of four years, which is obviously a, a huge amount of time to be away from your family and away from your friends and not being able to enjoy your, your rest days as such. So just a high, very high toll on the player's body. But yeah, player workload, I think, will remain prominent. And then I actually think that third area that's worth looking out for, unfortunately, is safe environments or healthy environments in terms of the workplace, as you said earlier, the workplace being the football stadium or this training ground, but also then even traveling to games. We've seen a lot of incidents of 
other violence or disruption, uh, which pose potential dangers to players, whether that's in stadiums, matches be postponed or abandoned because of fan violence towards players or things like that. Or even, like even in France last week, we saw an incident with buses and the buses being attacked by the, the home fans, the way it was being attacked by the home fans. And it's happened in a few different, there's that example where the match was then postponed prior to it. But there's also a few others of similar incidents while traveling to games or while at the stadium. So I think that's definitely going to be part of uh, the FIFA Pro work agenda next year. We have a report coming out quite soon on that kind of safe environments and how important it is. Uh, but I think that's going to become probably a big area of work as well. Yeah, plenty on your plate, mate, because yeah, the data side of things and the technology is just the complexity is just going to increase. The workload, as you've mentioned, I think top players are playing more than 70, day, um, 70 matches a year, especially when there's Euro or World Cup. Next summer will be Euro in Germany, so I guess it will be on the table again, especially for those competing at the highest level of the Champions League and going straight to uh, to their camp for the national team. Yeah, I didn't think about the um, the environment safety and the stadiums and all of that, and, but clearly, I mean, we've seen it increase recently too. So, yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it's not just particular markets like your uh, your home country. Which does, it does seem to crop up in a few different places. It's we've seen it. It's in Australia. We've seen it in, in France, and lots of other European countries uh, throughout the world. Yeah. So I don't think it's like a specific co- country issue either. It's just a global kind of worrying trend that's increasing. So it's definitely an area of focus because, mm. of course, we want to protect the the health of players. Is the first concern before we even get into the working conditions and the things on top of that. Talking, talking about the trends, uh, Michael, what we do, like, because I'm I'm cautious of the time as well, it's we like to ask our invitee, I mean, our speaker, like, if they have to recommend a book or a movie or a series, what what would it be? What if you have a choice to make or two choices, let's say? I mean, let's do a lot of podcasts. Don't uh, course, football, sports, politics, business. So I can see a lot in that way for a book. Uh, I think I would recommend Prisoners of Geography. Right? An author called Tim Marshall. Some people might know the book. But it's a really interesting kind of geopolitical book that basically uses maps of or regions of the world. Each chapter is a different region. It explains the kind of geopolitical strategies of those countries and those governments, um, including kind of their geographic position and the, the geography around them and how, how that influences them there whether it's their military strategy or their diplomatic strategies and their diplomatic relations, which provides a really interesting level analysis, I'd say, on geopolitics and why certain countries are perennially at war with each other or in fear of others or the way certain borders were drawn 100, 100 years ago or 150 years ago and pushed, say, ethnic groups together in the Middle East. And then that's obviously it's a good re- recommendation. It's, it's very timely given the, the current context. Exactly. There's a chapter on Russia, which I read the book a couple of years ago. It's not a new book. It's about six or probably five or six years old. But there was a chapter in Russia, which was quite forward thinking. When you view back then what happened afterwards, and there was then obviously a chapter of the Middle East and different things in Africa. So yeah, I thought it's a really, really interesting book. 
Okay, cool, cool. I will get the uh, I will get the reference. Uh, that's quite what I'm interested in too. So thanks, Michael. Um, yeah, maybe one last question is: uh, Do you have anyone inspiring that we should get on the podcast? Like, if you think anybody that you've come across over your entire career as a player, or even your last three years at FIFPro knows the game or knows the sports, good vision that we should talk to. Do you have anyone in mind or? Yeah, probably have a few for you. Uh, someone I would definitely recommend from, from FIFPro is Sarah Gregorius. I don't know if you've met Sarah before, but Sarah is our women's football director. Women's football director. Uh, yeah, well, without beating around the bush, I think Sarah will become one of the leading female leaders in global sport over the coming years. She's really impressed me since I joined FIFPro. Uh, and she's progressed internally quite quickly to become a women's football director last year. Uh, so I think she's done really good work and she's someone who's really impressed me. And then she's also quite good crack, as we say in Ireland, for Kiwi. So I think she'd be an entertaining guest to have on the podcast. But just be warned, she can be tough to pin down for interviews these days. She's often working on her next LinkedIn post, so she's she's a busy woman. But, she, <laughs> but she's, been, uh, she's been instrumental in her all of our women's football work over the last 18 months, including the equal pay conditions for the World, Women's World Cup players yeah. and some of the diversity and equality work we've been push, we've been striving for. So she's she's very good. And she's had a lot on her plate with the, the last World Cup and everything happening since then too. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You could try to get her on. I'd recommend her. We will try to find some time in our calendar. Uh, th thanks, Michael. Uh, really, really appreciate the time. Really appreciate you being on the podcast, sharing your insights. Really, thank you. Uh, actually, I didn't see the time fly. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's already an hour. But uh, yeah, thank you, thank you for uh, for taking the time with us. No problem, JP. Anytime. Good to speak with you. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoy it as much as we love creating them. If you like the episode, feel free to comment, rate, and share with people around you. You can visit our website, www.lastsource.io, to learn more about our activities. You will discover a wide range of articles and can subscribe to our newsletter to receive the latest tech and sports news in your mailbox every month. Stay tuned for new episodes. Le corner.